Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reard Jarvis, and I am here today with Lydia Finette. Thank you so much for being here. It is such a pleasure, and I really cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. We both have big smiles on our faces. We're very lucky to have this time together because we kind of stole it today. So that is lovely. <laughs> I want to tell folks about who you are and, and why I stalked you at a book event and asked you if you would come and be on the podcast. So Lydia is a global thought leader and a Christie's ambassador who has led auctions for more than 600 organizations, raising over half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. Lydia is represented by CIA, travels internationally as a keynote speaker, helping people to unlock their sales potential and empowering women in the workplace. She was named one of New York's most influential women by Gotham Magazine and has been featured in like everything that you read. And you also have a wonderful book that's out called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room, which I definitely want us to talk about. And you are writing another book right now, I think. Finished. It's finished. Yay! Yes, I know. It's an even better thing to be finished with the second book instead of writing. It's called Claim Your Confidence, and it comes out March 21st of 2023. So March <sighs> calendars. Well, okay. I'm going to go pre-order as soon as possible. I would definitely recommend that people who love travel, particularly follow you on your Instagram because you go to the coolest places and wear the coolest clothes. Thank you so much. I want to talk a little bit about who you are in the world. And then also to explain to folks why I stalked you at a, at a book event. So I'm going to lead with that first, which is that you and your family were in a really horrific car accident earlier this year. And so that was really kind of like my introduction. You and I know some people in common and the way that social media works somehow, some way, that was how I came into knowing you was, oh my goodness, this person that people that I care about really care deeply about has had this really terrifying. And at the time that I came to know it, we did we weren't sure what this was going to mean for you and your family. And one of the things I get asked about in grief and loss is when people have experiences that are terror-inducing and terrifying and life-changing and game-changing, what are the threads that then they sort of experience, right? Like we know that when your father dies, some of the way that we grieve that relationship is through changes in our life. And it doesn't mean you have to start a foundation, but when you ask people what changed in your life after your father died, most of the time people have something that they answer and want to say. So my questions are big and long and you can enter into them at any point, but I would love for you to talk about what your work life is and also sort of what your family went through and where, where you guys are on the other side of that today. That's such an incredible introduction. And I think there are so many layers to that question. So I'll start with the beginning in my work life. And you touched on this in my bio. I've been an auctioneer for Christie's Auction House and specifically a charity auctioneer for Christie's Auction House for over two decades now. It's a passion of mine. I love being on stage. I love raising money for nonprofits and then going year after year back to the gala to see what the money has done from the previous gala. So it's really such an incredibly gratifying part of my life and something that I really fell into, realized I could do better and just practiced until I got to the point where I felt like I was an expert in being a charity auctioneer. And 
I travel, as you said, voraciously, both personally, but also for business. I love being in motion. I think one of my friends once described my life as a life in motion because I really never sit still and I never stop. And so I really would enter into this conversation by saying the hardest stop I've ever taken in my life was on Halloween of 2021 when my family was driving back from Westchester, which is where my husband grew up, back into New York City where we live. And a woman coming in the opposite direction lost control of her car and flipped over the guardrail directly in front of our car. And, you know, I don't really remember much. I remember my husband screaming, watch out. And then it was almost like time stopped, really. And so if you want to talk about a life in motion, it was a life in motion that came to a complete stop. My husband and I are both knocked out. Our children are five, seven, and nine, and we're all in the back seat. And when I came to probably a minute or so later, I was so confused. I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom where we were or what had happened. It had happened so quickly. And all of a sudden it was sort of just wrong angles and broken windshield and sort of everything light filtering in, in the wrong ways and everything kind of came back slowly. So really the first thing I remember doing was trying to take a breath and I could barely breathe. I didn't know at that point I had fractured my spine. I had broken seven ribs. Basically, if you think about where a seatbelt was, everything was broken. Everything that saved my life broke my body. And I'd hit my face into the airbag with such force that it had split my face open. And so I couldn't see anything out of my left eye. I assumed I was blind and my husband was still out. And so I sort of glanced over at him and I, I don't even know that I thought, is he dead or is he not dead? I just kept thinking like, what, where are we? Like, where are we? And then what's happened. And then it was like my children's screaming came into focus. And because I couldn't move, the only thing I could think was just listen and make sure you can hear each of their voices. Because at that point, I think the severity of the accident was coming into play. But I, because of the kind of person I am, I kept thinking like, it's okay, just take another breath and then you can get up, right? You can get up and help them. But I physically could not get up. And luckily my husband came to, he had found out later that, you know, basically shattered his entire left wrist, but had enough strength to get out and go back to them, touch each of their bodies and make sure that they were alive and breathing. And then came around to help me get out of the car. And that was when we both kind of realized that I couldn't get out of the car. And so that's a lot to to say to anyone listening right now. It was a lot in the moment, but I dug into and and I wrote my last chapter of Claim Your Confidence about this experience. I immediately dug into the side of my personality that just kept framing and reframing and reframing. This is going to be okay no matter what it is. The children are alive. If you are paralyzed, you are paralyzed. There is nothing you can do about it. You might be blind. And so I think because I hit that point so quickly, everything that happened after that was a reaction and me trying to get people to understand that I would be okay. And I know that sounds crazy, but that really is who I am at the core. And I, I will always go back to that for the rest of my life, like, you know, being cut out of the car and going into shock and being in the ambulance and still thinking to myself, you're going to be okay. You've got to be okay because the kids need you to be okay. Like there's no other choice and you have to be strong for them. And really the past 10 months, 11 months have really been guided by that singular principle, that statement. And it's kept me moving forward. 
which yeah. is what I've wanted to do since, yeah. since that moment, you know, even being in the hospital where I was sort of broken and they were taking me in for surgery. I kept thinking to myself, I don't think you guys realize I'm a really fun person. I know I'm going in for surgery, but everything's going to be fine. My kids are alive. You know, they're in stretchers, they're little broken bones here and there. My husband has a shattered wrist, but like we're alive and we are going to be fine. And I, and I, I believe that the past 10 or 11 months, I mean, you talk about travel, you talk about all of these things that I do on Instagram is my reaction to this accident. It is life is to be lived because you never know when it's going to end ever. And gosh, if I didn't see that firsthand, how quickly it could be over. And then the other side of it was just this unbelievable outpouring of love and support. I said to my mom afterwards that you can't imagine going through something like that. You can't imagine laying in a hospital room with all of your children stretched on gurneys next to you and your husband sort of like covered in a sheet and arm bound just in so much pain. And, you know, knowing that I was going in for internal surgery where they didn't really know if I was bleeding internally, they didn't know how much they were gonna have to take out of me. Like all of these questions are being thrown in the air. And really the only thing you can grasp onto is like, what can I hold true to at this moment? What can I show my children in this moment? And, and I believe in in that moment, I just thought like, we have to live. We have really have to live with abandon and just go for things that maybe would have scared us before, but won't scare us now because we know that it doesn't always last forever. So that was a long answer to your question, it's but a gorgeous answer. And it's, it, 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 so it's making me think I'm framing it against some of the things that I know and have heard about people who have had, you know, the moment, right? Like the life-changing moment. And, and most of the time when I'm speaking to people, that is the, the death of someone, but it could be also the loss of something, their own physical ability, their relationship, their, their job, their, you know, it, generally that's, that's, those are the folks that are sort of talking to me about this unbelievable energy that they are handed, mm. right? Like in one split second, this is what happens. And you had the, the secondary element of also, you know, the, you had surgeries and your, you know, you had recovery and your children had recovery and your husband. So your body also had its own adjustment, which I imagine still exists, you know, that, 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 that kind of impact on your body stopping is probably something that stays inside you for a very long time. But what I'm thinking about is the way in which I had a client one time describe to me that the loss that she experienced felt like that moment in the wizard of Oz where like there's debris and people and, you know, the house is spinning and at some point it comes down and in her world, she wasn't looking at the witch in the ruby shoes. She was walking around inside the house to see what was still true and viable. Mm. And what you're describing is it is going to be okay because I am alive. Feels like the handrail Mm. that you grabbed onto, not in that dissociative way that can sometimes happen where people are like denying the reality, but instead it's like, this is the this is going to get me through. This is the, this is the handrail. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it also sounds like you yielded in that moment to everything that could be broken. 
yeah. that, that, you know what, maybe you weren't going to walk. That doesn't mean that you, if those things had turned out to be true, you wouldn't have additional feeling about it. Yes. But in that moment, you didn't hold on to the fear that it might be true. You just accepted that it might be true. Yeah. You weren't terrified by it. You were, well, that might be what happens. That might be the story of my life now. Yes. And so both of those elements feel to me like, you know, aspects that we talk about in grief, like this concept of like, how do we get to acceptance? Mm -hmm. And there's this wonderful neuroscientist teacher who wrote a book called The Grieving Brain, Mary Frances O'Connor, who talks to us about that moment where you open your eyes and you're like, where am I? You know, the brain codes information and it's never been in a car accident where the light is like this and it wasn't two seconds ago. And so it's trying to learn what's going on. And I think part of what you're describing, which I really love and I think is in your first book, and I think it's something you've been talking about lately, which is that you may have to practice. You may have to actively pursue the learning Mm -hmm. of this new reality. But if you accept that, that maybe there's less tension. Yeah. Right? That there is, does does that sound... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I do also think that once you have that moment of acceptance where you realize that things may never really be what they were before, which I think specifically if we're talking about my body in particular, I've always been an athlete my whole life. It's been, I've been a runner. I play sports. I love it. It's something that I go back to when I'm stressed or anxious. It's really for me, the fail proof to anything. If I'm in a bad mood, go for a run. If I am doing anything that doesn't seem right, just an hour by myself doing something where I'm sweating and thinking and breathing will always set me straight. So to all of a sudden have all of this taken away at a time when I need it the most was really an unbelievably crazy moment in my life. And I found so much strength in giving myself grace to walk out of the door and walk half a block and be okay with that Mm -hmm. and say, it's not about running miles anymore. It's about walking to the Brooklyn bridge, which is probably a fourth of a mile from my house and walking, not even a hundred feet up the bridge. It's just to get my foot on that bridge. You did it today come back again tomorrow and see where you go. And that grace that one of my friends said to me, you know, just give yourself grace, Lydia. It just happened. Give yourself grace. And I repeated that back to myself. I repeat it to my husband. I repeated it to my children. We just have our, we have to give ourselves grace and meet ourselves where we are. And we can't move past. We have to go straight through this. We have to feel the feelings. We have to be sad as a family. We have to be angry if that's where you feel like you need to go. But more than anything, we have to talk this out of our systems. We just need to talk about it. And that is what we do as a family. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, oh, I heard, you know, I heard all about the accident, but I'd love to hear from you. But obviously your kids are here. And I remember once sort of putting my hands over my son's ears. And then I said, you know what? He was there. (laughs) He can tell you just as much as I can. And I realized that by allowing my children to have their own voice in this experience, it allows them to also process this. And it's been such an interesting thing because they talk about it all the time. We all do things that they'll remember. I remember six months after the accident, there was an ambulance. We were walking we live in the city and we were walking down the street and we, the ambulance kind of passed 
And there was kind of a pause. And then my daughter said, do you know that most of the time, if I see an ambulance and you're not with me, I wonder if you're in it. (gasps) I left first. The kids thought I had died. That was something that came out after because I never got out of the car and they did. And they went into a good Samaritan's car and waited for the ambulance to take (sighs) them. So they saw me go out of the car, but they never, they never knew for sure that I was alive. They've been told I was alive, but they didn't really believe that I was alive. So those words coming out to me felt like a win because she felt comfortable saying them. And then my son said, yeah, I wonder that too, mom. I wonder that too. So we talked about that. And now when we pass ambulances, I ask them, do you guys still think about that? No, not really. You know, we've, we've talked it out. It's not scary. It doesn't sit as a knot in our stomachs. We talk about these things and it's just really been a lot of that, of a lot of learning. I don't have any experience with grief. I only go what, with what I know makes me feel better. And I can see it in my children's faces if it makes them feel better. And we just try to lead with that. What is going to make us feel good? But that storytelling about what happened is threaded through the family fabric now. You know, it's, we all shared it. We all went through it. We all had a different experience with it. But I think the fact that, and they would say this too, you know, mommy, mommy was fine. You know, her body was broken, but she was fine and she was strong. And she got out of bed, even on the days when I didn't want to get out of bed, because I knew that they wanted me to stand up and stand next to them while they had breakfast. Even if my mom was the one making it because Chris had a broken arm and I could barely walk. So we joked the whole time. We broke it in that household. (laughs) We used to say we were three quarters of a person because we couldn't accomplish tasks. Like we couldn't blow up a balloon because he couldn't tie it. And I didn't have the ability to breathe through broken ribs. So he'd have to blow up the balloon and then I would have to tie it. So there were a lot of things that we really could not accomplish as, as one person, but we tried to find humor in it and joke about it with the kids so that it wasn't, something that seemed scary or something that seemed like we'd never be able to do it again. It's a different definition of strength, honestly, to be able to talk about the truth and mm-hmm. to let people have the wide variety of feelings. You know, you're just, you're describing this, I think in a way that lots of families would find enviable, which is being able to trust the instinct, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I, when I was a child, there was a a trauma in our childhood and the ethos way back then in the early eighties was not to talk to kids. Right. And now we know better and people are trying to do better, but it doesn't mean that necessarily it feels better. Right. And so to walk around in your kitchen, joking about being three quarters of a person is one way using humor to tell the truth, but also the courage and the acceptance, right. Of your kids to say, Hey mommy, I'm, kind of afraid of ambulances because I think when I see them that you might be in them and being able to not, oh, you don't need to be afraid, but instead like, yeah, that makes sense because I was in the car, you know, you didn't believe it. And that's the, to, to demonstrate to kids that like feelings are not something that we can't handle. And of course you would have all kinds of feelings about this terrifying event. I can't stop that because that was the truth of what you lived. I'm not going to I'm not going to remove that from your reality, but, but I do think that's modeling in a way that they didn't understand 60s, 70s, 80s, that we're showing kids that like, yeah, kids go through the same things that adults do from an emotional standpoint. And I can tell you, I was afraid. And the fact that you were afraid makes sense. Yeah. And we were in this horrific event and it's going to impact how we 
move forward. Do you talk with your kids about some of the energy of keeping moving, being reflective of the accident? You know, is there, or is that just family ethos? Like, do you guys talk about, Hey, you know, that was a really dramatic thing that we all went through together and now we're different, or is it, this is how we've always been and we're living life. And, you know, this is one of the pieces that we have kept as we go forward. I think it's somewhere in between. There are a lot of references in our family to the accident, you know, and I think my friends will often say, if I haven't seen them for a while and I'm with them for a couple of days visiting or something, they'll say, you know, you still do talk about the accident. And I, and I agree that that's definitely true, but it's not, it it doesn't hold the weight that it held. Yeah. Months ago. It's, it's a reference point of something that happened in our life because truly I think for the five of us, there was before the accident and after the accident. And it's difficult to explain those moments where you find yourself in a situation where it comes up, but it comes up all the time. I mean, I took my daughter for a checkup or actually, I know I took her to city MD because her sister hit her in the nose by accident and we were worried it was broken. So I took her to city MD and we were in there and the nurse came in and Beatrice said, Oh, I hate that thing. And the nurse said, you know what? And it was basically an IV bag and it was like the hook for an IV bag, not even the IV bag. And the nurse said the hook. And she said, yes, because when I was in the hospital, that, that meant that I had to have an IV and the IV was the worst part of being in the hospital. And the nurse kind of looked at me. And so then we, of course, we had to explain the accident, (laughs) you know, so this is, this is what happens all the time. You know, they'll talk about the fact that my youngest five-year-old went in and was the only one who didn't cry when she got the IV. And she said to the nurse, I'm not going to cry, but Henry and Beatrice are definitely going to cry. And sure enough, Henry and Beatrice cried. And, but again, all of these things were told to me because I never left my hospital bed. I was you know, yeah. I was waiting for my side, had my first surgery the first night and I was waiting for my second surgery four days in and I couldn't yeah. even move to get a glass of water without the amount of pain I've never felt and hope to never feel again. But these stories were all passed through my family and my friends who came to our aid. And I think I started to say this earlier in the podcast, but one of the most remarkable things as we were laying on that gurney, as we were all sort of in the room before I went in for my surgery, I remember vividly thinking and telling my mother afterwards, it almost felt like I've seen my funeral in, in many ways. I, I felt like the days and weeks that followed were almost as if I had died and I saw the life that I'd created and the life that my family and the support and the love and my own family, it was the most remarkable outpouring of love that I can even, there's no way to explain it except to know that I felt ultimately okay. And I also remember saying to my mom, even if I had died that day, I saw what would have happened to my children. And I felt safe in that because my little brother and my little sister and my sister-in-law, my in-laws and my parents just swarmed. And then that was you know, that was the core. And then the layers of friends, I mean, my friends broke into the hospital. They had devised this <laughs> system whereby they would pass badges back and forth so that they could see the kids and then sneak up to find me. And so, you know, I was almost just basically hiding under a sheet, trying to will down the minutes until the surgery. And I remember just hearing sort of my best friends laughing in my room and, you know, coming out of a fog, I was like, what are you guys doing? That's so funny. <laughs> I know. And they said, oh, 
we found a way to get in, but we have to pass the ID badge and bring donuts. And then we just walk in like we work here. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even tell you how many of the nurses finally, after about day seven, just stopped asking how many sisters I had. <laughs> uh, the answer was, <laughs> you have a redheaded I can't quite remember. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a very small sister who's five one. You seem quite tall. I'm like, yes. I'm only six feet. Yes. So yeah, that would yeah. be complicated. But it really was the most incredible part of the whole experience and something that I will never forget as long as I live just the dropping everything and anything we needed whether it be food or I mean in the hospital it was socks and nail polish I mean couldn't even use any of it it was just it just wouldn't stop coming and my parents were incredible my in-laws were incredible and that to me was another gift that I took with me just knowing that that existed in my life you said this thing about sort of like before the accident and after the accident and I think when we're, when we're talking about loss, particularly, that is a thing that people are able to co- concretely define and probably could like film the moment of their life where it was like, this is the old life and this is the new life. And this is the 20 seconds in which the shift happened. And I think uh, in grief work, what we talk about a lot is that there is no going back to before. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, there is this like yearning and pain about that. And I think about it sort of energetically that like, there's a period of time sometimes for folks where they, and it can be a really long, you know, it could be 10 years where the looking back is really the focus, right. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the feeling that that is what I want. There's the present day, which for some people is just sort of like sitting down Mm -hmm. and looking back. And then there is the like one little brick under your foot moving forward. Right. And so when you're describing walking a quarter of a mile, Mm -hmm. that is the new and the forward, because in the old life, that would have been ridiculous. What do you mean? You only went a quarter of a mile, but we're in the new and in the new, we have to accept that the new is new. And one of the things that I've been really interested in is sort of how that energy manifests for people. Mm -hmm. What does it look like for children? What does it look like in their play? What does it look like in their friendships and their sleep and their eating and, you know, the way in which they think in the, in the after, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I was a child was there was a death in my family, well, in my extended family, that a teenager drowned and I was nine and developmentally right around nine, 10, 11, you're starting to understand about death. Yeah. But my separateness from the kids around me was really evident to me. Like, you know, some of them still believed in Santa Claus. And I was like, yes. what are you people are even talking about? I didn't have the agency of being a kid in that way, but it wasn't all bad. And that's part of what you're also describing to us. And, and in early, fresh change, loss, grief, people do not want to hear that there's anything good to be found or had, they need to find it and have it again, the, the rapidity, the, the speed at which you were able to understand that this was calamitous and it was going to be okay, that you needed to sort of adjust to a different spectrum of what recovery was going to look like. And a quarter of a mile is amazing. And that, you know, your kids being able to talk about their feelings is great. And also the notion of like, how do we then step forward into life? And part of yours is with this giant bundle of emotional flowers and balloons that we are so loved. Yeah. That, and really that's where I came into your story was that the, the, just the outpouring of love and concern for yeah. your family was just, 
And, and for you to take that in, not as this terrible thing happened to me. And then I had to be on the receiving end of all of these people, but instead to say, that's the gift that I walk out of this with is that I don't ever have to wonder whether we are concretely loved. And if my kids would be loved and, and be okay, if I couldn't care for them for some reason, I mean, that I hate when people are like, well, traumatic growth, because it's organic. You don't get to just traumatically grow. And it, I'm not sure it happens for every person, but I do think the opportunity for, for loss and sort of untenable experiences to change you for the better. I think it is there. Yeah. I think there's the possibility Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I feel like this is a non sequitur, but also it isn't to me. One of the things that you do so beautifully is really show people how hard your job is in the, in the, like you work hard at your job. Right. (laughs) And just recently, just maybe a couple of days ago, you participated in this. I have to say like, to me, extraordinary auction, because I do love cars. I think they're amazing. I was in, I was in Spain for part of the vacation and there was a whole big exhibit of old, you know, like the James Bond cars. And I I just think everybody thinks those are really cool. But part of what I really loved was you talking about practice, showing that it took practice that you studied. So can you just tell folks you do happen to have a super cool job, (laughs) maybe like how you got into it and, and maybe also just, you know, what does it take to, to do it and what this car and this big car thing was all about? Absolutely. So it is so funny. I, I think now that I'm in my early forties, I think a lot about what I see on Instagram. I love Instagram. I love social media. I think it's so fun to tell stories and to see how people present things. But one of the things that I've always thought was a little frustrating about Instagram is obviously there's Instagram versus reality. And we all joke about yes, that, of course. but the one part that is incredibly misleading is what it takes to be successful, you know, and I know that I see people in their twenties and thirties and forties and fifties who are just starting out and, oh my gosh, they have exactly what they need and they're doing exactly what they're doing. And they've hit the jackpot on day one. Fantastic. I just want everyone to know that's not my story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I tried out to be an auctioneer when I was 24 years old. I had started working at Chrissy's auction house when I was 21 and had seen auctioneers getting up on stage at charity auctions and always wanted to do it. But because it was really a job meant for men, it yeah. was also a job that was meant for people who'd been in the company for a really long time because there was usually a client relationship. And that was the reason we were sending out auctioneers most of the time was because the client had a charity and they called us and requested it. It was really up to someone who had a client book, which I did not have to go out and take their auction. But a lot of people had missed auctions in this particular year when I was 24, because no one really took it seriously. It wasn't, it wasn't what it is today. It wasn't something where people were really strategic. It was just kind of like throw someone on stage, you know, let's sell mom's quilt and see how, see how much money we make for charity. And it just wasn't what it, what it is today. And so I had accompanied a lot of the auctioneers and seen them taking them and just was dying to try out. And when they sent out the email, I must've been the first to respond. And I went down to the charity auctioneering tryouts, which I've taught now for Christie's for almost a decade. Oh my and it's God. basically like survivor. You start out with about 20 people. And over the course of a couple of days, you get whittled down. More- oh my God, it's American Idol for, for-, <laughs> for auctioneering. The <laughs> uh, most nuanced American Idol that ever was. But I, I really believe as someone who teaches it now, you can teach it to anyone. The question is, would 
would you want to teach it to somebody who you would then put on stage and who would shrivel up and die, <laughs> which right. I've right. seen. And the answer is no. So they whittled us down from about 20 to, to four. And I was much younger than most of the people who had tried out anyway. I was much younger than the people who passed. And I was the only woman who passed that year. And it was interesting because that became so much about my road as an auctioneer was not only justifying the fact that I was allowed to be there. People would always sort of look at me and say, but where's the auctioneer? That's me. No, but the auctioneer who's going to take the auction, still me, but not the person who stands next to the auctioneer, but the person who actually takes the bids. Again, that is still going to be me. The answer is always the same. There's no one else coming. You're going to just have to deal with what I know how to do. And I mean, that was the beginning. I don't know why I did so many I think I was so much younger than everybody else there. There were a couple of guys around my age who thought it was fun. And so they would take them too. But I really just got so much practice because I would get on stage anywhere. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I moved Did it, jumped in there. there. Just jumped in. And as a result, I just got bashed and battered and microphones didn't work. People boo. Like it's just the most, oh. you know, people have been drinking. It's 11 o'clock at night. They don't want you on stage. The auctions used to take place way after when they should have taken place. Too many lots. I didn't know how to vet them. I didn't know how to be strong enough to stand up for what I knew was supposed to be right after a couple hundred auctions. And, and then finally I did, you know, 10 years in, I really, not only did I realize what it took to be good, but I also started to correct organizations who would say to me, no, the auction should take place then. And I would say, that's fine. You can take the auction whenever you want, but if you want me to take it, this is when I take auctions period and sentence. And I don't waver and I don't change because I know putting it earlier in the evening is going to yield better results for you. And I don't want to be on stage when people are leaving. And that's what happens after dessert. And so that was kind of the beginning for me of auctioneering in general. And what you're talking about with this big car auction, the exciting part for me is I've been a charity auctioneer and this has really been what I've done for a long time. And in January of this year, I left Christie's full-time. I'm an ambassador for the company. I still take charity auctions on their behalf, but I also have a business of my own where I take charity auctions and write books and give speeches. And all of that has been such an incredible passion of mine that it's been amazing to have the ability to have the time to do that when I'm not in an office anymore. And I received a call from a company called Broad Arrow Group that had split from Sotheby's, which is the other big auction house in, I guess it was like May of this year through a friend of mine who I'd known for a while who knew that I was doing this. And I went to lunch really just thinking like, you know, this is not going to yield any fruit, but I guess I can go. It's lunch. Really, it's lunch. It's a free lunch really enjoyed meeting their head of marketing and his whole pitch. He was like, listen, we're brand new. We want to try something totally new. There are no women who take auctions. We love your style. We think your charity auctioneering would kill it in a commercial car auction. You know, it's big, it's rowdy. These people like to have energy that matches theirs. And I just thought, you know, why not? not. Try. And it was, I will tell you one of the wildest couple of days of my life. They're, they're, all auction veterans, but this was their first time doing this sort of on their own. And, you know, I'm coming at this from charity auctioneering. I don't really know anything about the car world. And I mean, we were as a team scrambling, pulling things together, getting the estimates together, creating hand signals to make sure that I knew when reserves were bidding and charity auctions are usually 45 minutes to an hour. You know, I'm the only person on stage. There's no script. I just get on, get off, you know, raise the money and leave. This was 93 cars. 
I was on stage for almost five hours, you know, and even as a woman, I said, listen, I've had three kids. I don't know if I can stand on stage for this. That's, long a ma- that's two time. marathons. That's I, was, I just don't know great. if I had this in me. I also had a, had a broken back 10 months ago. I know. Wow. I know. And I will tell you, I was absolutely exhausted afterwards. And it was just, as I said to my husband, you forget how amazing it feels to push yourself out of your comfort zone yeah. and do something great. And you know, I got an email this morning asking if I can come back and take another one even faster oh, than God, I thought I was going. So, and all the press was really excited about having so you broke, you record. broke all kinds of records, 14 records, 14 world yeah. records. I know <laughs> I said, don't, you know, don't ask me to say anything about the cars. I can tell you the color, but that's about where I stopped. So, you know, between now and the next one, hopefully I'll have the, the time to spend a little getting to know a little bit more of the car world and like everything else, you know, as I said, I was like, this is, this is ground zero. So we go from here. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I think it's completely unique and thrilling. And again, I think there are sometimes jobs where people are like, I have no idea how you would even get that job or what you <laughs> know to, to hear your, the way in which sort of the genesis of it and the way in which it, you got to where you're standing right now is really thrilling. What it's also reminding me, and I talked to a lot of folks because my, my day job is as a trauma informed therapist, I specialize in grief and loss, but I worked with a lot of folks during COVID less about grief and loss and more about just sort of like living in the change of the world. And one of the things that I think now we have some folks who are writing some papers on is this concept that novelty for humans, that novelty and risk-taking and, you know, it's good for your brain. It's inoculating people from Alzheimer's. It's, but just what you're talking about, which is the thrill, right? Like the adrenaline and the physical sensations and all of that, you know, it's really good for your body and it's really good for your spirit and it's really good for your mind. And when we talk about sort of how do we live forward after bad things happen, in my opinion, the, the idea of being able to live forward by embracing new things is easier, is simpler, is makes more sense than trying to go back through the broken old stuff and see if you can do it maybe as well as you did before. And I, and again, I think for some people, there's a sit still energy that sort of enters their body that keeps them, their roots going down into the ground and maybe tethering them up to the sky of sort of, you need to sit here and figure this out. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a whole host. And certainly my experience when my mom died was more this, which was like, I can't sit here. I can't go back. I got to go forward. And in order to do and be the new thing, I need to like actually go somewhere new and try something new. Right. And so there's something about the way that you're describing this and the look on your face and also the pictures of it on Instagram, which really do make it look like, you know, that that maybe is where transformation happens Absolutely. right around these things. And what's interesting, and I heard in it, I, I didn't interrupt you to ask the question, but I think Everyone assumes when you win American Idol, whether it's for singing or auctioneering, that then you're like, well, I'm one of the four people that made it through. So I'm amazing. But what I know is that then you are just working to prove that you deserve to be one of the people that made it through. And the thing that happens on this podcast and in my life in general, because I'm 48, is I talk to women that hit 40. Mm -hmm. And they say what you said, which is, I actually know, I don't have to pretend. I don't have to act as if anymore because I am. 
Yes. And I have a, I have a colleague that calls it the aunties. Like, you know, you're, you ask your aunties because they have the wisdom, but at some point that's who we are. And I have this little idea in my head about interviewing women across all spectrums of and asking when was the moment that you knew and how did you know? And then what was the difference? Because you described it as, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking an auction at this hour. I'm not doing it after dessert. This is the way I do auctions. This is the way that I know they should happen. And this, if you want me, this is the way that it is. And that boundary setting that comes around the knowing. Mm -hmm. And when I think about big events in our lives, sometimes that knowing shifts a little bit, right? Like sometimes the thing that I used to do and the way that I did it, that made sense was some boundaries. And now I'm, I gotta, I'm going to take a little bit of risk and I'm going to shake that up. And maybe I'm going to know, I'm going to know something else. So the fact is right now you do big car auctions. Exactly. And I, often go back to something that Martha Stewart, I did case studies in my first book and the most powerful woman in the room is you and asked women to write about, I would just give them the topic of the chapter and then ask them to write 150 words, whatever they wanted. And my second chapter was called the most powerful woman in the room sells as herself, meaning that she doesn't try to grab anyone else's style. She learns how to do it herself and, and sort of owns that. And Martha wrote at the end of the chapter, great paragraph. And the last thing she said was success seldom comes in the form that you think it will. And mm-hmm. I la- I was laughing with my husband afterwards. I said, you know, after 20 years at Christie's, you would think that my first commercial auction would have been an art auction. Yeah. And there I was just selling cars <laughs> and it felt so fun, <laughs> and different and exactly where I was supposed to be. And to your earlier point about success, I also think that, as you said, on American Idol, someone's like, oh, I want American Idol. I'm done. No, no. You know, it's like I wrote my first book and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've written a book. But guess what? After about a year, everyone's like, congratulations on your first book, period, end of sentence. What comes yeah. next? Yeah. Success is innovation. Success is, you know, constantly looking for what is going to evolve you as a person and how you are going to evolve into something else. And, you know, this car auction for me felt like a success. But when I walked off stage, I remember thinking, okay, now I know what that looks like. And these are the four things I can do better the next time. Mm. And that's what success looks like because none of us are perfect at anything we do. And, and that's why I say to people all the time, it's not about being the best, best practices. That's why they're the best, right? You just keep trying and trying and trying new things and then doing something different and doing something different than what people expected. So did I ever think that I would be taking a car auction? No. Did I love every second of it? Yes. <laughs> I had a mentor years ago who, I mean, it's clear that you loved every second of it. And I mean, it just, I think it would have been such a cool thing to get to be in the room to see. I I had a mentor years ago who said to me, you know, you are co-creating with the opportunities of the universe, who you are going to be in life. And if you can be curious about what it is that you don't already know about yourself, and, and meet that opportunity, that is sort of, you know, where the, the liminal space and the little igniting and the, and I say that all the time, people, you know, I was on a, I was teaching something yesterday and they said, like, how did you come to do your work? And I was like, I know you want a linear answer of how did I become a trauma therapist, but I'm going to give you the, the real answer, which is like back ass words, yes. this is never something that I intended to do. And I'm grateful for that because if I had done what I intended to do, 
I, I don't know that I would have grown all these other things that thrill and excite me and are passions for me. So the co-creation of being able to say, yeah, you know what? Things I didn't expect, maybe even really terrible things happened. One of the things that I like to offer people who are listening is, you know, what does it mean to carry grief over time? What does it mean to, to embrace change? What does it mean to sort of find a, a verb of grieving that allows you some element of recovery? And I think part of what you're offering, you know, just with your passion and your excitement and your energy is to remind us that, that the way in which we let the energy of the bad out of our system by talking about it, acknowledging it, being with it allows there to be other things, other energy that comes in there. So you'll never not have a story that doesn't include being in a horrific, terrifying car accident where you worried about your own life, your husband's life and the life of your children. But trauma is the event. Mm -hmm. Being traumatized is the meaning that we make of the event. And so sometimes that can be, my body is too terrified to ever get in a car. And sometimes it's, you know, it's screw that I'm taking a car action yeah. that, that those, those two things. And that, and that when our bodies are too terrified to get in a car, that's not a wrong thing. It's not a thing that we're doing wrong. It's that's the energy I have to address. Yeah. And I, again, going back to what my friend said to me, I think with grief, it's like, you give yourself grace. You know, I, you asked about the kids and the one time like things would seem to be fine. And my oldest daughter had nightmares, reoccurring nightmares after the accident, months afterwards. And they were always about me, me dying, me not being able to get to me. You know, it was always some variation that we were in Texas and there was a tornado warning. So then there was a tornado that took me. I was like, this seems like this never ends well for me. I have right, to say. Right. But, you know, for me, that was the, the school has a wonderful therapist where she goes to school. So she started meeting with her every Monday to have lunch so that they could talk about this and come up with coping skills to help her because that wasn't in my toolbox. Of you know, I, I didn't know how to stop those nightmares. And I don't know, you know, what happens late at night when she's sound asleep, why that's when it comes to her when during the day, she doesn't seem to have those issues. And so allowing her that space. And then what, one of the things that I was thought was so beautiful as we were out kind of at the end of the year right before school ended with her best friend. And she said something in this very sort of like confident way that Beatrice often does. She said, well, cause Monday I have lunch with my therapist and my friend looked sort of her eyes looked up at me. And I said, because of the accident. And she was like, yeah, that makes sense. But just the way that she owned it. Yeah. And that was it's just, shame. Part of yeah. Who came? yeah. nothing, you know, none of us been through this. This is the, this is the resource that I have. And this is how I help navigate that. And, you know, the, the other thing that I think is so hard as a parent, I love the 360 of, you know, I remember being a child and struggling with things as a child. And now I'm the parent of my kids are older than yours, but stepped in the same two year Mark. So now they're 14, 12 and, and 10. But when my mom died suddenly, and I had real PTSD from that afterwards, I asked them what that was like for them. I did a podcast on it and I had all these ideas 
-hmm. you know, the things that I was worried about was that they were going to absorb trauma from my mother's death and that my not being able to cope with that very in it, you know, very well and be present for them was going to be the trauma of their childhood. I mean, the ways that they answered those questions, like they, they didn't, you know, what was the hardest thing? Like the hardest thing was that I had a big fight with my sister. Like that didn't even register to me. I've been fighting with my sister since she was born. You know, the thing that they didn't want to tell me, the thing that they didn't want to tell me is that they thought the funeral was really fun because they saw their cousins. I mean, it was just so interesting. fascinating. And, and what I think from the parenting perspective is that, you know, we can't protect our kids nor should we protect our kids from the wide spectrum of emotional experiences and that there may be a story in your children's life that going through this experience was the building block for something that is growing now. Certainly that was the case for me that even though I had trauma in my childhood and, and was actually traumatized from it, a lot of the beautiful things that have grown out of my life have been on account of that experience. And so being able to sort of, again, show up for the energy that's there and show up with it for it authentically allows us to maybe put our feet a little bit on the new path of the after path. Yeah. Which has to be a little bit different. Listen, I am so grateful for this conversation. I could talk to you forever and I hope I can't wait for your new book. I'm going to encourage people to definitely get your, your first book. I'll put the, in the show notes, people can come and and I'll put the links so that they can follow you. And, you know, if they want to buy a rare and very expensive car, (laughs) you know where to come. But this really, uh, you've been so generous with your time and so generous with your story. And, you know, again, I hope I get to see you out in the real world and, and say thanks in person, but this was just really just a beautiful episode. And I'm really grateful. Thank you, Megan. And thank you for the opportunity to speak so frankly about it. And also just to speak with someone who has such a gift of turning everything into a meaning as well. So thank Mm -hmm. you for your time. Thank you, Lydia. Take good care. And I'm sure we're going to cross paths very soon. (laughs) Very sure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.